Ladies and gentlemen, if we may uh, begin. Um, our speaker this afternoon is Victor Catan, and he's a figure who's particularly interesting because of his background and his wide experience. Um, he is, if it is possible to be so, partly Palestinian, um, although he, he has had an international upbringing, family experience uh, that covers several continents. Uh, he is the author of a major work in this field um, and uh, let me just get the title correctly, Victor. Author from Coexistence to Conquest, International Law and the Origins of the Arab-Israeli Conflict, 1891-1949. He's also, among his many jobs, worked in uh, the occupied territories of West Bank and Gaza as a UNDP consultant. Uh, and he's written numerous scholarly articles, which is how I've come across him, um, which, uh, some of which drew on his work for a PhD at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London a school which the British Academy had some part in setting up, although the details of it are lost in the uh, myths of time. Um, I owe a particular debt of gratitude to uh, Victor, because a few days ago he had an article uh, on the Haratz, Haratz uh, website in uh, Jerusalem, not unrelated to what he's going to uh, tell us uh, now. Uh, and um, when I suggested that I had an interest in publishing a piece on a not unrelated subject uh, to do with my grandfather and the Balfour Declaration, uh, of which he was somewhat critical, um, uh, Victor helped me to uh, uh, get it published on this excellent website. Uh, as you can see, he's going to talk to us about one of perhaps not the most glorious episode in British colonial history, uh, the rise and fall of the Balfour Declaration and the end of the Palestine Mandate. Victor. You've got my, my papers as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I've tried yeah. to purloin his papers. <laughs> not just page five either. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Sir Adam, and um, thank you. Uh, I'd like to extend my thanks to the uh, Council for British Research in the Levant and, of course, the British Academy, and in particular, uh, James Watt, uh, Rosemary Hollis, um, Rachel, and Maggie for, for uh, arranging for me to be with you here today, and I'd like to thank all of you for coming to, to listen to me. Um, so my talk today is based on a book um, I published about a decade ago, as well as uh, some more recent research, shall we say, um, in which I've revisited the work in the book um, uh, in light of other areas of, of, of interest. Uh, in particular, the uh, statement that was made uh, a year ago uh, by uh, the foreign minister of uh, the PLO threatening to take a case against the British government over the Balfour Declaration. My curiosity was stirred because as, a, as an international lawyer, I was wondering, could that be possible? Um, and so I thought I would revisit my work 
and thinking along those lines. So, so part of the research will be coming out in, a, in, a, in an article in the Journal of the History of International Law, and this is the first time I'll be presenting um, the, the, uh, the article uh, today. Okay, so... Um, So uh, the presentation is 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 into is broken up into um, three parts. Uh, so I'll look at I won't say as much on the rise of the Balfour Declaration because uh, Jonathan's covered that quite comprehensively, um, but I'll just perhaps um, uh, discuss a few issues that that, that that were not not raised that might also um, be relevant, or I suggest they'd also be relevant that have to do with British domestic policy at the turn of the twentieth uh, century. I'll then spend more time looking at the Declaration itself. Um, how it was drafted, what it actually said, and then I'll look at British policy uh, during the 1920s and 30s, ending with the, uh, or the, the fall of the Balfour Declaration, I'll argue, happened in the 1939 White Paper. And then I'll look at the end of the, the mandate, which legally is the most interesting uh, bit, what happened when um, the civil administration was withdrawn uh, from Palestine on the 15th of May 1948, and that will end also going to what the Palestinians might be thinking about uh, today. So the rise of the Balfour Declaration. Um, so I, uh, everything that's been said about it being a, a war aim in 1917 uh, is, is, is absolutely uh, valid, and, and um, I don't have much more to add to that. But there is, a, there is another uh, line of argument um, one, could, one could raise, which is looking at uh, the debates in the, the turn of the 20th century in this country on, on immigration uh, and Jewish assimilation. And there was uh, the reason why I, I suggest this might be relevant is because some of the characters who were involved in uh, drafting the Balfour Declaration were involved in these earlier debates. So there was obviously um, Arthur Balfour, who was a prime minister um, when uh, the Uganda plan was... Um, this was a plan to establish a a Jewish colonization scheme, it was called, for East Africa, uh, part of Kenya today. Uh, and uh, he was a prime minister at the time, and the person who was the uh, lawyer who drafted the scheme was um, called David Lloyd George. He was a young lawyer at the time, and later he was uh, prime minister of the country. And uh, during these debates on immigration, there was a royal commission that looked into the causes. There was a, a persecution of Jews in Eastern Europe, Russia, uh, pogroms, and a lot of immigration coming to this country and then to the United States. And there was, there was a commission on alien immigration. No need to go into the details, but one of the members of the commission was Lord Rothschild, the same Rothschild who the Balfour Declaration is addressed to. Um, and what's also intriguing is when Herbert Samuel, uh, who was a member of the government, came up with this idea of a Jewish homeland in 1915, the government was then, as Asquith, was not so, so interested in the scheme. The, the change took place when the government changed and when... Uh, Balfour was a foreign secretary, Lloyd George was the prime minister. And so I suggest that that might also be, have something to do with um, the reason uh, behind the declaration, which at the end of the day was to enc encourage the immigration of Jews to Palestine uh, over a long period of time. So yes, the immediate uh, circumstances were war aims to get support for the Allied war effort, but it had not, the obligation itself was a long-lasting one, and it involved... Um, serious matters of concern, drafting up a mandate document, not so different to the document that uh, was drafted by Lloyd George in 1903. So just a suggestion that there is, a, there is another history that one, one could look at comparing internal 
uh, domestic politics to the, to the foreign policies at the time. So I, would, I suggest that they could be seen as complementary in some ways. Uh, so the rise of the Balfour Declaration is, uh, as we know, 2nd of November uh, in the form of a letter, and then it finds expression in the mandate, um, which was then approved by the League of Nations uh, in 1920 initially, and then it was redrafted um, and it entered into force um, in 1923. So obviously we should perhaps look at what the, the Declaration uh, has to say. Um, and it begins by saying, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's Government the following Declaration of Sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations which has been submitted to and approved by uh, the Cabinet. So on the face of it, it's a statement of policy, um, which, uh, although it later finds expression in the mandate, could be changed by the government. And, and indeed, it was uh, changed. Um, the Declaration Hour then goes on to say that His Majesty's government view is favour, the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing uh, shall be done, goes on to say, which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. So if we wind back, uh, we notice immediately, as, so as someone with a legal background, words have meaning, so if you look at the this expression, this, this phrase, national home, what does that mean? Obviously, it didn't mean a state, but it affected a compromise between those who wanted to establish a Jewish state and those who were opposed to a Jewish state being established. So the compromise was that perhaps over time, such a state could be formed. But in the meantime, they came up with this, state, this, this, this word national, national home, which had never been used before. Um, but it's also uh, conditional, it being clearly understood that nothing... So you can't do anything, according, <laughs> literally, uh, that, uh, in establishing this home that would prejudice the, the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities. And this is um, Lord Curzon in the photograph who, who was uh, responsible uh, for this, uh, for inserting this clause. Uh, he went... And anyway, he went even further. He, he, he insisted that... Um, uh, the status of those uh, Jewish immigrants coming into the mandates and the communities that already existed in the mandate were equal in all respects in terms of civil and religious rights. That was what he intended. As we know, that, that was impossible and that didn't subsequently work out. But that was uh, the intention at the time. Uh, there was also a, a second safeguard clause which is also more, more overlooked. And this has to do with the, political, the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. And um, this was uh, inserted by Lord Montagu, um, who was one of the few Jewish members of the War Cabinet. And he was concerned, uh, as, as a member of the British aristocracy, he was concerned about his status as an, a Jew and an English gentleman. And he didn't want to, to be accused of dual loyalty uh, at the time. And he was worried that if Palestine was the national home of the Jewish people, it it could encourage um, anti-Semitism, and so he wrote several memorandums uh, uh, trying to get the government to, to modify its policy. And uh, I guess to the extent that they included this clause, it did modify the policy somewhat. Okay, um, then there's a fall of the 
Balfour Declaration, which I'll spend uh, more time on. So as I said, the Declaration will then um, find expression in the mandate, uh, the British Mandate of Palestine. But it's still, it's phrased as a question of policy. It's in the preamble. Um, it's then referenced in Article 2. And then the key points is that there are specific uh, uh, provisions in the mandate about facilitating Jewish immigration, about finding land to settle um, uh, uh, the Jews uh, that were coming to Palestine, um, creating a, a Jewish agency that would facilitate this, etc., um, etc. Et um, and then the, the non-Jewish communities were spoken, uh, they were not really uh, directly mentioned uh, in the mandate. However, some complications, because the mandate uh, was drafted at the same time there were international developments happening, there was a Bolshevik revolution, and there was Woodrow Wilson's uh, 14 points, um, there were other declarations that were issued by the Allies uh, around the same time or just after the um, Balfour Declaration. So we've heard about the Hussein McMahon correspondence, which was from 1915, but there were other declarations that were issued and that appeared to uh, envisage granting the indigenous inhabitants of the, the Levant uh, self-government. Um, and this actually caused Balfour concern. At one point, he wrote a letter to Lloyd George saying he couldn't understand how, they, how all these different... Um, promises and agreements could be reconciled. Um, and then there's, there's also a, a letter from, um, from Balfour to Lloyd George, also in which he repeats the point that we will facilitate the Jewish national home, but we, we must not prejudice the rights of the, of the inhabitants there. Um, and then the covenant of the League of Nations is another, another complicating factor if you're a lawyer because it speaks of the well-being and development of the existing communities in the Levant. So lawyers in the early 20s were trying to work out, again, uh, whose well-being and development. Is it uh, just the indigenous uh, inhabitants who were living in Palestine in 1919, or also all those who immigrated to the mandate over the 1920s uh, and 1930s? Uh, the other issue, of course, was that you had resistance in the mandate from the uh, Palestinian Arabs who were not happy with this British policy. Um, and there were rioting's, uh, riots. Uh, there was a, uh, I think there was a military commission of inquiry uh, as early as 1920, because the first few years was a period of military rule before the, before the mandate was uh, approved. And so the British government was then faced with was having to um, modify, shall we say, its policy. And this occurred for a series of white papers issued. Uh, the first one was 1922, just before the mandate entered into force. And then there were later white papers in the 30s, uh, culminating, I'll say, in the 1939 white paper. There's also an interesting uh, cabinet memorandum uh, that was issued when they were having uh, these debates. Um, I'll just quote from it. Uh, at one point, the government was thinking, well, how, how can we possibly reconcile these different obligations? So some, some, uh, con some consideration was given to uh, you know, giving up the mandate. And this was in 19... 23. In the end, the British government decided not to, not to relinquish the mandate. And the reason why they did not do that was because two, only two things could happen. Another European power would take the mandate, which wasn't uh, good for, for, the, uh, for British policy. Or, even worse, the Turkish uh, Empire would uh, obtain control again. Anyway, I'll just uh, read out to you the last sentence of the memorandum. Uh, the result, if Britain had given it up, quote, We shall stand for all time as a Christian power which, having rescued the Holy Land from the Turk, lacked the strength or the courage to guard what it had won. 
Uh, and that argument uh, won the day, and so Britain continued with this policy, although knowing full well that it was going to lead to trouble um, ahead. And so what we see in the 30s, we see, we see problems, in, uh, we see the rise of national so- socialism in, in Germany, persecution of Jews, an increase in Jewish immigration. We see the Arab revolts. Um, and then there's the Peel Commission report, which basically says that this is a, a policy is irreconcilable, recommends partition. Um, this, although this, this is not uh, accepted at the time, but it leads to, um, to some interesting uh, developments in British India, which I'll, I'll address, including warnings from Muhammad Ali Jinnah. And, and I'd argue that all these events culminated in the, the Balfour Declaration effectively being set aside as policy. So one of the things we should be aware of uh, is the demographics uh, of, of the mandate when the Balfour Declaration was issued. It was overwhelmingly um, uh, Arab in the sense that people spoke Arabic, uh, whether they were Christians or Muslims. Also Jews mostly spoke Arabic at the time, uh, although the Jewish population was, was small, I think about 7%. This changed quite drastically in the first few years under British uh, rule, and especially during the... Um, 1930s. But I just want to read out to you a statement that was made by a British officer from the security services uh, reflecting on the opposition to the um, British policy in Palestine. This is dated, it's a report from the Jerusalem protests, and this is dated the 15th of May 1919. So so very early on. And this is what the uh, security service officer wrote, and I quote, I've personally heard many Arabs, both Christians and Muslims, declare that they will forcibly resist any attempt to set up in this land a Jewish state or anything resembling it. The pan-Arab youngbloods, very bold in speech, say so openly on every hand. Others, not so bold and perhaps more candid, declare that they will sell out and leave the country. I do not think that the threat of the young Arabs is to be taken lightly as they might cause much trouble by appealing to the fanaticism of the villagers, and as they would certainly be supported by the Arabs outside of Palestine. And indeed, we see riots in Jaffa, Jerusalem, Hebron, um, in the, over the issue of the Western Wall in the late 1920s. Um, and then in the 1930s, um, due to the persecution of Jews in Germany, we see a massive spike in immigration to to mandate Palestine. You can see the, the statistics begin almost immediately with the election of, of Hitler in 1933, um, coming to a peak in 1935, and then still being quite high, but, but lowering down, and then coming to a, a pl- plateau in 1940. And again, that's because of the 1939 White Paper, which not only set aside the Balfour Declaration as a statement of policy, but also passed legislation to, rest- to restrict the immigration of Jews and land sales to Jews. And that remained the policy right up until the end of the mandate uh, on, in May 1948. Now, uh, one of the causes, uh, one of the results of this uh, mass immigration in the 1930s was uh, further protests from the uh, Arab population. Um, most notoriously the Arab revolts, which began as a six-month strike um, and lasted about three years. Um, again, they were opposed to, to the policy, and, and some of the figures that I looked up uh, in terms of the, uh, the British soldiers that were brought in to, to uh, 
put an end or try to put an end to the revolt. So there were about 20,000 soldiers that were brought in, 18 infantry battalions, two Royal Air Force squadrons, and this was in addition to the military police and the special night squads uh, and other things. And according to the historian, Palestinian historian Wali Khalidi, by the end of the revolt in 1939, about 5,000 Palestinians had been killed, 10,000 were wounded, and 6,000 were detained, which, according to Khalidi, was about 10% of the adult male population, uh, Arab population of Palestine at the time. And uh, one of the, uh, when, the, when the revolt began, um, this is when the Peel Commission was appointed to look into the causes of the disturbances. But unlike previous commissions of inquiry, the terms of reference were such that the commission could not question the policy of the Balfour Declaration. And so uh, the, the commission famously concluded that it become unworkable, and this is why partition had to be considered. And the Peel Commission, the first time anyone any British official had tried to carve out on a map the area of the Jewish national home. Um, but what the commission said, uh, by, by the way, was also quite interesting with regard to what it saw in the future, and it saw a future where the Balfour Declaration uh, would, not, would no longer apply once the Jewish national home had been established. And although the Peel Commission uh, was never implemented because the government of the day thought partition was impracticable, uh, there are, there are some interesting uh, statements that were given by the colonial secretary to the Permanent Mandates Commission in the League of Nations. So uh, the League of Nations established a system of mandates. Palestine was an A mandate, but it differed, differed to ordinary colonial rule in the sense that each mandatory had to account for its administration to uh, the Mandates Commission in Geneva. So how, many, you know, how, how much were you spending on the, uh, on the mandates? How many schools were there? clinics, roads, etc., public works. Uh, but it's also a moment to question British policy, which is what the, uh, what the Permanent Mandates Commission did. Um, and this is what uh, Ormsby Gore, who was a colonial secretary, said at the time. And he was, he's an interesting character because he was also involved uh, in the drafting of the original Balfour Declaration. And he said, and I quote, the Balfour Declaration, in itself a compromised document, was not expressed in definite political terms. It was a gesture, the expression of a hope then existing, that the Jews and the Arabs would compose their differences. That evolution had not taken place, and this meant that the Balfour Declaration must itself disappear and be replaced if there was to be peace, progress, and good government in Palestine by a Jewish state in one part of Palestine, an Arab state in the other part, and a special regime for the holy places. Uh, the irony is that the Permanent Mandates Commission wasn't very happy with this uh, statement because they wanted uh, the British government to, to continue uh, uh, abiding by the policy of the uh, Balfour Declaration. So nothing actually happens in 1937 and 1938. The real shift happens, however, in the, in the 1939 White Paper. And while revisiting the, the work I've already done, I, I was looking at the uh, Indian office archives, um, it's also connected to some other work I'm doing on decolonization uh, in, in Singapore. And uh, I was struck by correspondence um, from the All India Muslim League um, around 1938. So this is a picture of Muhammad Ali Jinnah. This is the Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajj Amin al-Hussein, um, taken in the early 1930s. And uh, he's, uh, there's a, what happened in 1938, 1939, five months 
up until the end. And so when you look at the reports of the, the commission, you see them constantly asking the British government to let them in, and the you know, security situation is getting worse. Um, and it transpired from the work of scholars like Avi Schleim that there was a, a deal between uh, the Prime Minister of Jordan and uh, the British government in January 1948 about dividing the Palestine uh, between the uh, Jewish agency, the, the provisional state of Israel, and the kingdom of, of Jordan. In other words, the independent Palestinian state in the UN partition plan was going to be sacrificed by these two states. And this would perhaps explain why the commission wasn't welcome to go into the mandate uh, anymore. This also raises the, the, the issue of whether Britain was cooperating with the UN, they were not, and whether the UN had given its consent to what subsequently transpired. There's then another complication. I should have mentioned this earlier. In 1924, uh, the United States has a treaty with the British government over the Palestine mandate. because so the US never joined the League of Nations, um, but they were intimately interested in developments in, in the mandate. So there's basically there's a treaty between British government, the British between the United Kingdom and the United States that basically reproduces uh, the mandate. There's a few extra clauses on economic issues and on um, U.S. interests, uh, missionaries, charities, and the things. So the U.S. come and they say, but we have an interest also in how you end the mandate. You have to t- consult us as well. And so in April 1948, they propose. This is very late in the day. They propose a UN trusteeship, which is the ordinary way of. If you're not going to give a country independent, mandate independence, you establish a similar structure, but the UN is then involved rather than the League of Nations. So the British government don't like this, neither does the, the uh, Jewish agency, but I want to keep my focus on the British government here. And instead, they rush into law something called the Palestine Act. And I looked up the, uh, the proceedings in Hansard in um, uh, the two readings of the bill. And it's quite shocking because the uh, colonial secretary, Creech Jones, comes and says, We're co- we are cooperating with the United Nations in, in implementing partition. And, of course, all the MPs are saying, no, you're not. This is patent nonsense. Uh, actually use that word, rubbish. Uh, and he's called out basically uh, telling a big fib to the United uh, Nations. Uh, sorry, to, the, to Parliament. Anyway, the act is uh, passed. Um, and then within a few days... The civil administration, the mandate, is brought to an end on the 15th of May. Now, what's interesting here is that the act is never passed in Palestine, in the mandate, because the Haganah blow up the the, uh, government printing office where the Palestine Gazette, where the law is promulgated before the end of the mandate. And so this this is an interesting argument because you see it uh, in some of the... um, the arguments used on the Israeli right to justify Israel's settlement policy today on the basis that the mandate was never validly terminated. It might have been terminated as a question of British law, but not in, in Israel today. Um, and then the question for the international lawyer is, where does that leave international law? One country's terminated law, the other one hasn't. What does international law have to say? Arguably, you could say that, uh, well, you could say that the, the question of consent from the UN was not there because there was no orderly transfer of power, there was uh, no law and order was not maintained in the mandate at the time. So if you know what was happening on the ground, you had Deir Yassin in April 1948. British troops were still on the, on the ground until 1st of August 1948. One question might, one might want to ask is what were the British troops doing 
in the summer of 1948. And I've, I haven't looked at it in huge depth, but I, I have looked at some of the literature, and it suggests that there was a dispute between Montgomery and, and Creech Jones, with Montgomery saying that the British government had the wherewithal and could have put an end to the violence. But the political... Uh, the guys in, 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 on the political side of, uh, in the colonial office and the foreign office uh, were not interested in that. So anyway, it, it raises the issue of uh, a lot of complex issues about uh, whether the mandate uh, is still in force, because if it is, it has a dispute resolution clause, um, which would allow another member to bring a claim against the British government at the International Court of, the Permanent Court of International Justice, which has now been replaced by the International Court of Justice. So one could envisage potentially... Uh, a, a, a former member of the League of Nations bringing a case against the United Kingdom today on the basis of the mandate. I say it's only arguable because it could also be argued that the mandate was validly terminated. That's what the British government would, would say. The real difficulty, of course, is finding a country that was a former member of the League of Nations that has an interest in the issue to bring a case. And that's why, why uh, despite what I've told you, it's probably not going to happen. Um, anyway... That's a picture of the, uh, the Peace Palace where it could happen. And I'll leave my talk there. Thank you very much. You mentioned in your speech, oh, my name is Nisar Ali Shah, and I'm a journalist by profession. In your speech, you said that uh, one-state solution is not possible. Israel doesn't actually want two-state solution either. So where do we go from here? Now, the world has been watching the ethnic cleansing of Palestinian and the non-Jewish community, Christians as well. So when are you going to stop talking and start acting? I mean, the action is very important. Now, British uh, uh, Foreign Minister Arthur uh, Balfour, mm. when he wrote this uh, letter, uh, promised to the Palestinians, everybody knows in this room, and the 31st of uh, uh, October, there was a, another conference in uh, Central Westminster Hall. They all mentioned about, uh, about this one. So the world is very powerful, America, Britain, Germany, France, and everybody else. So why don't they take any action? Because it is beyond comprehension that the world is watching, actually, like the genocide of the Red Indians in America, Maoris in New Zealand, and uh, Aborigines in Australia. Similar thing happening in Palestine now. So what is the answer? I mean, is it, can we wash our hands off, you know, of Palestine? They finished, Balfour declaration is fallen, and things like that. Well, there are experts in this room, actually, who know. I'm not an expert, actually. I'm a humble journalist. I can write about it. But what is the answer? I mean, this is actually a conference. It will go on and on and on and on. Mm. What's the thing? Can you explain to me or, or the audience? Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for your, your uh, comments. Um, no, I, I, I agree with, I understand where your frustrations are, are coming from. Um, and if I had the answer, I wouldn't be here. Uh, that's the easy answer. Um, <laughs> so if I get your question right, you're asking why no one is doing anything. Uh, well, we have to ask our... Huh? <laughs> 
everyone else. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, probably beyond what I what I do. I can, I mean, I can speak to you afterwards about this. Yeah. Uh, yes. No, hello. Uh, yes, hello, Stephen Fox, um, a friend of Victor XLSE. And um, just a man of leisure at the moment. Um, I saw in your timeline you didn't mention anything uh, about Transjordan. So I want to know what's the relationship between the creation of Transjordan in 1921 mm-hmm. and the Balfour Declaration. Mm-hmm. And then I know in your PhD research on partition, you had done stuff on Ireland. And I want to know... So on what, what sorry? On, on Ireland. Ireland, yeah. yeah. Time. And I want to know what you discovered about Balfour involvement in Ireland at that time. I'd be interested to see something else about this, this gentleman. Different context. <laughs> yeah, so basically in 1922, uh, and this is connected to what Jonathan was saying earlier about uh, the Hussein McMahon correspondence and the establishment of the Sharifian states, um, the British government decided to partition the mandate, which then included both what is modern-day Israel and the occupied territories and Jordan, um, which was one into two halves, and uh, the territory east of the Jordan River the Balfour Declaration would not apply to that territory. So that's what happened in 1922. So the revisionists in Israel view this as a terrible, um, you know, are against that partition, um, which they think was wrong on the behalf of the, the British government to do. The I- Irish one, I'd simply say that Balfour was also involved in the 1920, because same time period, 1920, Government of Ireland Act, um, which uh, established the six counties in Northern Ireland. It's John Roberts. John Roberts, is there any evidence uh, or any indication that Britain ever had a policy concerning the use of Muslim troops in Palestine, either before or after Jinnah? I, I don't, actually. <laughs> so I can't answer, answer that. All I know is that the, um, the, the, the gentleman who was sent to London in 1938 by Jinnah... Um, Made, a, made claims that British troops, have, they claim that one-third of the British troops involved, I don't know if this is true, but this is what's in the, in the, in the letter, uh, involved in the uh, Gaza campaign were from, uh, from India and were Muslim. And so the insinuation was, if you want our support again, you have to change your, your policy. Whether that's true, I don't know. Rosemary? Thank you very much. Uh, it's Rosemary Hollis again. Um, the use of British troops, I mean, British Indian troops, you're on about, in Palestine. Surely it was an extra British expeditionary force mm. from Cairo that went all the way to Jerusalem in 1917 and then on to Damascus. And there was an expeditionary force from, definitely from India, that went to Mesopotamia uh, simultaneously. And my understanding is that these were imperial troops and they definitely included Indians. Mm-hmm. But uh, somebody may be more knowledgeable on that. Certainly they included Indians in Mesopotamia, uh, but uh, the extent to which Indians of the British Imperial Army were in the expeditionary force from Cairo to Jerusalem, I don't know. I mean, no figures were given. Just a telegram from Jinnah saying, you know, threatening no Muslim troops in Palestine. He didn't give a figure of how many there were. Um, yes. right here. 
Victor, thank you. Uh, Ian Black, I, I wanted to ask a, a, a quite a, a, a question that comes under the heading of missed opportunities. I think anybody who follows this issue knows that that comes up very often. And there's one that struck me, and I'm really interested in hearing your view of it. I mean, the, the question is most often asked about the, the Arab decision in 1947 to reject partition. And I think the answer to that is, is, is well known. But there's another question of a similar nature that I find intriguing. 1939, the British White Paper of May that year, uh, said, I think you referred to it explicitly there. It said that the, Balfour, the framers of the Balfour Declaration never intended that a Jewish state should be created in Palestine against the wish of the Arab uh, majority. It was an extraordinary blow for the Zionist movement, to which they responded predictably with uh, fury uh, and determination to resist it. The Palestinian side also rejected it. Now, my knowledge of this, based on reading most of the available sources, and certainly Palestinian and Arab historiography, suggests that that was a terrible mistake. The white paper promised Palestinian independence, I think, within 10 years. It severely restricted Jewish immigration and land sales. It was, of course, a genuine disaster for the Jewish side because of what was happening in Europe. That, there's no question about that. But on the Palestinian side, as we look back at this story on this very resonant anniversary, wasn't that a terrible mistake? Didn't the Palestinians lose the opportunity to save something from the wreckage of the preceding 20 years? Absolutely. <laughs> I completely agree with that. Um, usually they, I've, I've been interviewing former negotiators uh, on, on more recent times, but one thing that uh, struck them is, is there's this, what they call the all-or-nothing approach. The Palestinians want complete independence right now. So anything that suggests you might have to wait for a couple of years, they, they will veto. And I think that's been a mistake time and time again. Uh, that was probably the first time in 1939, but we've seen it in other occasions um, over time. So, yeah, I'm, I agree completely with, with what you've said. Yes. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, Dr. Philippa Whitford, it's really just following on from that. You know, looking back with hindsight, it's very easy to see that what they would have had in 1948 is better than what they would even hope for now. But if you think that a whole country is yours and someone offers you to keep half of it, I think we have to be realistic and see that didn't look like a good deal at the time. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Victor. Um, I mean, in all the discussion so far, uh, Jerusalem doesn't feature in any sort of debate. Um, during the period that you look at, uh, was it there? Was there a discussion? Who's going to be in charge? Was it King Abdullah in Jordan? Um, I mean, I'm intrigued by this five-month period when the commission, the UN commission, mm. wasn't allowed in. Was there talk that, well, basically, you know, maybe it's better not to have a Palestinian state, let's just call it Jordan, give that part to Jordan? I mean, what, what was Jerusalem doing in all this discussion, given how important it is, mm -hmm. or it was at mm. the time? So Jerusalem uh, is absolutely key from, from day one. Um, it's one of the reasons for the, all the disturbances. Um, you can see that was uh, the Western Wall riots in 1929 um, and the involvement of the League of Nations there. You can see it in the various partition plans, uh, whether it's the Peel partition plan from 37 or the UN partition plan, which Jerusalem and the holy places, they also include Bethlehem, uh, are given a different, distinct, uh, different status. Um, in fact, part of the UN partition plan, um, the idea was to, so 
was, uh, Jerusalem was to be a corpus separatum. And um, I think, I don't know, you'd have to ask uh, uh, with regard to those, those crucial months in um, 1948, I'm not sure there was agreement over between the uh, Jordanian side and the, uh, the, the, the uh, provisional government of Israel's side over what to do with Jerusalem. So that's where all the clashes were. I think, I think Bevin said, you know, do not go... I'm, a, I'm relying on Avi Shalem's book, Collusion Across the, the Jordan. I think the statement went along the lines, do not go into the area allotted to the Jewish state in the UN partition plan, but of course Jerusalem wasn't allotted to the Jewish state. So that's probably why some of the heaviest clashing in that war was around or over Jerusalem. Yes. John McHugo, I, I just add to what I think Ian Black was get, getting at and uh, Philippa Whitford said. Um, when the Palestinians rejected the White Paper in 1939, you have to remember, first of all, that Iraq had already got its independence. Syria and Lebanon had been given a treaty by France which would have given them inter independence, but the French government fell and its successor refused to acknowledge it. So they were very close to independence. Jordan had its own parliament, its own constitution. It was close to independence. And on the other hand, there had been a whole series of Arab nationalist leaders who had been very moderate people in other Arab countries. I'm thinking, for instance, of Faisal, who nearly became king of Syria. He was betrayed by the uh, British and the French. Mm -hmm. And then the Syrian leaders who had negotiated with France were betrayed by the French. So I think from the point of view of Palestinian Arabs in 1939, the fact that um, Britain said, oh, you've got to wait, I think it was 10 years, was it, mm -hmm. for independence, would have seemed like an, uh, something smacking of bad yeah. faith. Yeah. But I don't think they can be blamed for rejecting it. Mm -hmm. I, I take that. Um... I think you're all making very valid points. Um, thank you. Yes, you first. Um, I'm Peter Shambrook. Um, if I could just add um, from what Ian Black said about how furious the Jews were, um, Ben-Gurion and his colleagues uh, in 1939, with what the British were doing, they were absolutely furious. And they had reason to be, because what we need to remember, in fact, is that they had been given uh, the wink. They had been given unofficially, uh, in private, they had been given an absolute assurance about what the declaration actually meant. Um, <clears throat> we need to remember that the deliberate ambiguity of the declaration successfully concealed from the public the precise intentions of the writers of the declaration, which in fact was to create an eventual Jewish state in Palestine and to turn the Arab majority into an uh, Arab minority through immigration. Uh, Balfour was absolutely clear on this in 1919 when he said to Brandeis on a visit in America, he said, Palestine presents for us an exceptional case um, which inevitably excludes numerical self-determination. We are definitely 
um, working for an eventual Jewish majority in Palestine. And as uh, John Hugo said, um, basically, Palestine, during those 20 years of the British mandate up to 1939, Palestine was the only former Ottoman mandated territory uh, in which representative institutions were not established. And there was, in actual fact, the bedrock of British mandatory policy was the prevention of the establishment of, uh, of uh, uh, national assemblies. Um, and, uh, um, and this is not just Walid Khalidi and uh, other Palestinian historians who say this. If you go onto YouTube and you look at uh, Sir Martin Gilbert's lecture at Ben-Gurion University in May 2011, and remember, Martin, Sir Martin Gilbert was the most eminent uh, Zionist historian of his generation, um, uh, um, Churchill's official biographer, and um, Middle East advisor to four British prime ministers, etc., etc., etc. He said in a moment, I think he, he was in front of a Jewish audience, exclusively Jewish audience, and I think he slipped into what I would call uh, balance temporarily in this lecture. And it's on YouTube. It's called the Kreitman Memorial Lecture, May 2011. Um, he said the centrepiece in the middle of his lecture, the centrepiece of British mandatory policy was the withholding of representative institutions for as long as there was in Palestine an Arab majority. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. Um, I agree, until 1939. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> then they changed the policy. Yes. So, so that was a policy up until... Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. One of the reasons why the, the Arab revolt began in 1936 was after a proposal by Arthur Warcop to... Uh, he actually recommended, he was the High Commissioner yeah. in Palestine, to recommend a representative government, but Parliament uh, was against it because they said this will, will prevent the... Uh, the Balfour policy, put an end to the Balfour policy. Jeremy Greenstock. Can you just uh, go into the question you put up on the screen of what was a breach and what international obligation? Because you seem to be putting the question to the audience and we might Mm. get into that. It may be something that Rosemary will be talking about later, but I'm just looking for more clarity on what you're actually asking. Okay. So it's arguable to say that the breach of the international obligation was over the failure to provide for an orderly transfer of power at the end of the mandate. In other words, the mandate was not simple. It was was an agreement between the uh, the United Kingdom and the League of Nations. It wasn't something that Britain could unilaterally revoke and then uh, divest itself of and walk away had to have the consent of the, the world community. Now, the complicated factor is the League of Nations didn't exist. It was the United Nations that took its place. Uh, the UN, however, uh, voted for a partition plan. I know the Arabs were against it, but they were not a state, and therefore that was, that was the intention of the world community. Even if they were against it, you can, you can still enforce resolutions against the states that don't like them. Uh, and so Britain was obliged, as a mandatory power, to, after having asked the UN... Uh, what to do with, with Palestine to follow the steps, that the procedure that, been, that had been uh, set up. But they blocked them, physically blocked them from, from, entering, from, from carrying out their obligations. Then when the United States 
said, okay, if we can't have a partition plan, let's have a trusteeship again. They stopped it and they walked out. In other words, the breach of the obligation is over the, the, the failure to have the consent uh, uh, with regard to the ending of the mandate in 1948. Needed the consent of the UN. The UN had consented to a partition plan. It had provided procedures that were to be followed and, Brit and Britain said that they were not interested. So that's where the breach, breach took place, I would argue. It's, it's an interesting idea, but it's, as far as I know, it's never been, within the history of the UN, been thrown back in the face of the British government that they breached an international government, international obligation. And certainly in, at the UN when I was there between 1998 and 2003, no Arab country tried to drag that up mm. as a breach of something that happened under mm -hmm. the UN, even... And if they'd felt that that was a, an international legal case that could be made, they would surely have, have drawn upon so it. So I should have said there was, a, there was an attempt, I should have sorry, said this, in 19... There were, there were discussions in 1947, and this is why I think it's worth... Uh, more research is necessary, but there were attempts by Syria and Egypt, I uh, think Iraq, to refer a number of questions over the whole transfer of power and the partition plan to the International Court of Justice. Then they were thinking of an advisory opinion as opposed to a contentious case. And uh, there were several questions that, that went to vote uh, and they were defeated. One of the questions was over the um, question of self-determination and the partition plan. That was defeated by one vote only. So had that gone through. So there was a, there was a dispute there about, about these issues. But I think they've been forgotten. <laughs> this conflict's been going on for so long that people forget uh, what, what happened. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will come back to some of these issues in the concluding discussion. But uh, it's time for us, I think, to uh, first of all thank you very warmly for your extremely interesting uh, presentation. <laughs>